0: Well, welcome everyone to the very second Epsilon Theory podcast. I, I, I think we've got any sort of microphone issues uh, adjusted from last time. Uh, it's 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 just really exciting to, to to be doing this, and I've I've got my. Partner with me, Rusty Gwynn. Hi, everybody. And uh, we've got a very special guest, uh, uh, Brian Portnoy, who I'm going to, to, to introduce in a second. The, the the topic of this podcast number two is very different from I think anything that Rusty and I have done with Epsilon Theory to date. And I wanted to do it, frankly, around Christmas time, uh, end of year time. I, I, I am thinking about these issues, and the, the issues that I'm talking about are the issues of our own personal lives. You know, Rusty and I, we write a lot. We do our podcast and our our ET Live episodes about markets and about game theory and about politics. But we don't talk about our own personal lives. We don't talk about what money means for a life well lived. And it's a it's a hard topic to talk about. It, it doesn't come that easily to me. Uh, it is something that that frankly I've always kind of shied away from. Because I, I as much as I write and I think I write pretty well, it, it's 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 difficult for me to write about the 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 very personal aspects of of, of money and, and again the way that that, that interacts with with, with life. I'm, I'm reminded of there's so Matt Groening, the, the the guy who invented the Simpsons. Right before that, he had a column called Life in Hell, and he's got a great line in Life in Hell, which is that the French are funny, sex is funny, comedies are funny, but there are no funny French sex comedies, which is which is true. And 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 from my wait a perspective, minute, yeah, no, 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 it's true. There no, are no, no,
1: no, no. I will contest that. So it is a good line, but there there is a movie called The Closet with Gerard Depardieu, and oh, it's geez. all in French, and it is absolutely fantastic, and it's a completely about sex. And I just hate to disagree with you while you were on a roll on such a roll,
0: but okay. It's a wonderful film, and I highly recommend it. All right, it's the, it's the, it's the one, <laughs> the single exception approving the rule of a funny French sex comedy. But actually, that's appropriate, because where I was going with this was that... Books are good. Uh, the personal is good, and finance is good. but i I don't know of any good books on personal finance. Right? And so except, and there is an mm-hmm. exception here, and it's one Rusty you mentioned uh, in your latest note, and it's why both of us thought, oh, we've got to get this guest on for this second podcast about personal finance. And that's Brian Portnoy, because he wrote a book called The Geometry of Wealth, which I think is a good book about personal finance. It is the,
1: the closet of uh, yes, personal Yes, it is the books.
0: closet of French sex comedies, which I hope, Brian, you will take in the spirit of which I have intended it. So welcome to number two podcast, Brian Portnoy.
2: Thank you. I'm just thinking about the size of Gerard Depardieu's nose. <laughs> and and thinking about you know my semitic tra- travails and I'm just a little bit befuddled and confused right now. I, I think we should move <laughs> on from French sex cinema to wherever you guys want to go.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Well, where we, where I want to go with this, this is why I'm, we've we, we've got you on here, Brian. Is is really the 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 subtitle uh, to your to your book, The Geometry of Wealth, and it's. It's subtitled, How to Shape a Life of Money and Meaning. That's what I wanna talk about today. I don't wanna talk about personal finance in the sense of, oh, allocate this portion of your savings to X, Y, Z, or, I, I don't want this to be a, a recipe or a cookbook about the money side. We're not gonna get
1: a, uh, how much of my portfolio should be in Bitcoin.
0: Exactly, exactly. Let's. No, uh, much that, much. That's what I would like to avoid mm. today uh what I, what I want to talk about, and, and that's why we're kind of changing the the tables around a bit. usually it's it's Rusty asking more questions, and i do more expounding. Uh, but I, I want to talk about that connection between money and shaping a life of meaning. And that's why I wanted Rusty here to talk about that, and that's why I wanted Brian here to talk about that. It's that what what does it mean to to shape a life of meaning? I think that most people, when they think about meaning, when it comes to money, is this kind of bloodless conception of philanthropy, right? That oh, well, that's that's meaning. And and I and I know Brian from your book, and I know Rusty. You've got a lot of thoughts on this too. That what both of you mean by shaping a life of meaning and the use of money to achieve that, it it is a lot more than oh, I'm just going to you know. Let's talk about a cookbook of how to make money and market so I can give it away. Right. It it it's it's a it's a much more profound concept, and that's why I really wanted you guys here to talk about it. So let's let's start this way. Brian, for the listeners who don't have a sense of your book, The Geometry of Wealth or how you're thinking about shaping a life of meaning and the role of money in that, give us the 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 thirty-second or three-minute even tour of, of 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 what you mean by that?
2: Sure, um, let me do that by just talking about the origin of the book. Which you know, so as you guys know, I've been in the investment management industry most of the last twenty years, and um, I spent upwards of five years at a mid-sized investment management firm where I was effectively the head of behavioral coaching. Content and just found ways to work with advisors and their clients on better mm-hmm. decision making. Um, a big part of that role was speaking with individual investors, lunches and dinners, and keynote addresses in large hotel ballrooms and things like that. What came back to me, and it was just a real joy, um, was you know meeting individuals. I take a lot of pride in simplifying complex stuff within money world. It's kind of what I do. Um, one of the reasons is that I don't really understand the most complex parts of our world. And so I, I try to reach out and 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 take that complexity and put it in terms that I can then teach it to others. And so I do that. Um, I get good feedback on doing that. And the number one question in return from, from individuals who would grab my elbow after speeches or reach out to me via email. Was the question, "Am I going to be okay? Is my family going to be okay?" Thousands of interactions with individuals—it's really the only question that gets asked. Um, hey, hang on, Brian. Is this, this? These are financial advisors asking. No, these are, these are individuals. These are. I'm talking about individuals yeah. that I met. Financial advisors ask one question only—different <laughs> question, which was, "How do I add value?" in a commoditizing industry, and maybe we can get into that later, Yep. but on the individual side, am I going to be okay? My parents, my kids, my partner, and, you know, we, we, we've we all lived in this investment world, CFAs and MBAs and Bitcoin and gold and, you know, the Fed and whatever, um, you know, spent a good 15 years in the hedge fund industry, and, you know... I I sort of got it, but didn't really until I, I think really got it that people just wanted comfort and understanding and perspective and even mental models around their money life and not just investing. I think one of the mistakes I make, maybe we all make in our, in our world is to think that money equals investing when in fact Mm -hmm. money is a wide range of domains. I, I call it money life, saving, spending, earning, investing, borrowing, giving, Uh, insuring, so people want perspective on that. And um, the Geometry of Wealth came around in that context of trying to answer that question for people I met, but also for me, growing kids, aging parents, typical sandwich generation, and inspired by the likes of Carl Richards and, and a couple others who took design seriously. I came from Morningstar originally where design is at the very center of their success, able to portray complexity with simple pictures. I just came up with the idea that as we move from the purpose that we have in life and then the financial priorities that stem from that, and in turn the decisions we make within the context of those priorities, we've got a simple three-step mental model, define purpose, set priorities, make decisions, and I captured it through three shapes, a circle to represent that we're always, you know, sort of going around and around through the course of our lives, figuring out who we are, who we want to be, what yep. we want to do. Um, I wrote about three broad priorities, hence the um, the triangle. And then um, I wrote about uh, four different decisions that we make really on the investment front and hence the square. And it seems it seems to have landed that. um bringing forth a simple mental model on the question of, am I going to be okay? Which bridges us, bridges us into the, the, a series of questions about where money fits into a meaningful life.
0: Right on. Now, And, and, and I, I, I think back to what I know people use Epsilon theory for, which is to, uh, Use it. You, you use the word mental model, but it's it's it it, it is telling a story, right? It's and it it's in not to not to educate and not to lecture at people, but so that these are tools that they can use in the conversations they have with themselves, frankly, Right, which is where I found your book so useful, right? Where where I find any book that that really sparks something in me, it's say, okay, I hadn't thought about putting it together in that way, and that really helps me have a better conversation with myself, right? Which are the most important conversations we can have. And and then it also I think happen helps because uh, we're in this business of dealing with financial advisors. It, it helps financial advisors have a better conversation with their clients and with themselves as as, as well. So that I, I just think that that whole approach to, to understanding, you know, not as a lecture but as a way of 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 providing a model for us to think for ourselves. I, I find so so so, so useful in, in in that book.
2: And you and, and you two are the kind of the, the probably two last person people on the planet I need to uh, uh, teach about the importance of narratives. But a lot of what we struggle with in life are the words and the concepts to capture the things that we think and feel. And. I think I've found a bit of a sweet spot over the years in not making causal arguments, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At, but more kind of sort of pre-causality. What, what, what are the concepts, what are the variables? And to the extent that we talk about these mental models, which to me is just sort of monger-esque simplification of a complex world, mm-hmm. um, putting stuff out there that people can think about and if they find it useful, It's theirs for life for free. And, you know, one of the most gratifying elements of this journey over the last three years since the book came out was couples, husbands and wives telling me that they never had more productive conversations with each other about financial decisions um, uh, since they kind of picked up and absorbed this basic purpose, priorities, decisions framework.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, for exactly that reason, um, and for the reasons, Ben, that you described that, in particular, the purpose part of the framework has always resonated with me, specifically as it you know concerns the experience that, that, that I've had in, in the wealth management industry. You know, when, when Ben and I were both at, at Salient, um, Salient was both an asset manager and a, a wealth manager, and uh, at the time, uh, before ultimately we sold off that business – Salient was running about, you know, four and a half billion dollars for for families in, you know, primarily the Houston area. But, you know, there were some international families and there were some foreign families as well. And what I found when I read The Geometry of Wealth is that it, it put into both words and in a framework one of the, the anecdotal observations I'd made from the most successful practices that I saw within Salient, specifically Two different kinds, right? Two very, very different approaches that could fit within that framework. And Ben, you're familiar with one, one of our, uh, our, our, our still very close friends and colleagues who was who there at Salient. Um, you know, he, he worked with a, a, what I would describe as a, a multi-generational family. Right. And right. it was a, they were on G5, as they say, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and had been, you know, it was G1 who ultimately initiated the, the, the relationship with, with the firm. And what I found so fascinating is how much of the time, you know, our former partners spent in clarifying, repeating teaching to the, each of the generate, you know, to G3, G4, G5, and watching the process of discussing purpose. Mm-hmm. And defining purpose and clarifying, no, 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 what specifically do we mean by this part of what we're saying is, is the purpose of the family's wealth? And not just the family's wealth and what they're doing with money, but the family and the values and all of that. And and the amount of time that was spent on that, it was fully 60, 70 percent of the relation man, relationship management time was spent on defining purpose. And, and and on the other end of the spectrum, you had – and I would describe this as being one of our less experienced financial advisors who who – because of the way his his book started to grow, found and look, this is Houston. this is Texas, yeah. that you know, many of these people were oil and gas executives who were very strong, very sort of devoted Christian people. And what they were looking for was a financial advisor who could help them define how do I think about money as a person of faith? Uh-huh. and and now it becomes incumbent upon the financial advisor to have a framework for looking at that. That isn't just, you know, uh, you know, how do I how do I allocate uh, right. among index funds and think about the, you know, maximizing my expectations of of information ratio against this blended benchmark? There's a whole nother question here. And I know that the question of, you know, talking about plans and motives and, and all that isn't different. But I think the way in Geometry of Wealth that, that Brian talks about purpose and its primacy in this framework and it's the the fact that, that it comes there, I will say the most successful franchises I've seen in the wealth management business, the people who've built their book the most successfully, and and have had the most engaging, successful—and I mean that in a not just financial, but in the sense I think of of you know not to steal your thunder—but the funded contentment I think that results from the execution of this this process, the most success that I've, that I've seen in the industry. So it was an immediate reson, uh, resonance with me. I think when I when I read the book and when I saw the way you'd describe that, I said. Yes, that's exactly what I've seen in successful practices.
0: Well, well let me. I, I'm going to. i to ask a question about the business of financial advising, right? But I do want to come back to this notion of well, the, the 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 personal part of personal finance, right? And and I'll I'll and, I'll and I'll say it kind of in the same in the same way. It it, it strikes me from the story, for example, you were saying, uh, you're relating, Rusty. And, and and I know you know some of the stories, and I know some of the work you're doing now, Brian. It it feels like the business of financial advice has become much less advice and much more. I'll call it coaching, uh-huh. right? Where you, where you're not where you're not educating, you're not lecturing, you're not teaching the 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 person whose personal finances are being examined. You're like a coach. You're trying to get—I'm not going to say performance out of them, but you're trying to get that uh, realization of recognition of what is important to them. That's that that, that that's coming out of, uh, of, of 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 this. So I, I I do think that 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 that's something. You know, let's 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 talk about that a second. To to what degree is is it coaching
2: as opposed to advising or teaching? I, so I think you're, you're, you're touching on an existential issue for the industry, which, by the way, isn't very old in the grand scheme of things. Yes, there's been stockbrokers going back however long there have been mark, you know stock markets and bourses. And, but the current world of financial advice, wealth management, financial planning, it's a few decades old it, it, mm-hmm. it, in, in its current format. And it's evolved very quickly. I mean, but before we got on, uh, we're probably all Schumpeter fanboys. we We were talking about the process of creative destruction and sort of the number one rule of of capitalism is that things change, and for the most part, everything in its path gets destroyed and yep. and then and the new thing happens. Um, that's great when you're reading a textbook that's not great when your job disappears. Uh, Because of forces well beyond your control. So we live in a yay capitalism world without hardly anybody really understanding the historical specificity of what capitalism is and what it does. And so for financial advice, you know, we could go back to Bud Fox, who sat there in the opening scenes of Wall Street, and he is a broker just selling crap to anybody. And we can fast forward to today to a very different world. I, one of my talks, I call it the path from Gordon Gecko to Brene Brown. So you know, we start out with brokers, and we end up with life coaches and financial therapists. Right. Yes. And, and, and and which is the right answer? Yes, they're all true. And so part of what's going on, which I find just, <laughs> I, just really fascinating to me, is what? How do we define the end? How do we define the provi- the professional delivery of financial well being, and we've got answers that range from from Gordon Gecko to Brene Brown, and they all exist simultaneously, and 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 people can just pick their poison in the sense of um, the number one calling card for the successful advisor to me these days is authenticity. If you're if you if you enjoy being a broker and an investor. And finding the hot manager in the hot stock, great, do that, do that authentically, and then find clients that are right for you. I have an increasing number of friends who are expert in this burgeoning field of financial therapy. They, they have serious academic chops and clinical work on the counseling side, and they know how complicated money is as an, as an emotional journey. That's what they do. And where we see the industry playing out now is sort of a a land grab and a bit of a mind share grab for who wants to be what to whom. And the industry is so damn big. There's room for everybody to do everything. We've sort of, you know, I don't know if it's a fixed point, but where the industry has been for call it 10 to 15 years is in something called goals-based wealth management. You got to put a little trademark thing next to that (laughs) Um, because Effectively, what the wirehouses did says, what the wirehouses did was say, us just selling a bunch of stuff and baking it into portfolios, you know, isn't going to cut it anymore. We need a wrapper. And then the wrapper became client goals, which makes all the sense in the world, right? Of course, you're going to save for your kid's college or your own retirement mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. But the core exercise is still selling those investment products. You just have sort of a different a different spin on it. We can get into it if you want. But the whole notion of goals from a, from a neurological and even epistemological point of view it's really fraught. Like it's not the most straightforward thing. Once you scratch the surface on what's a goal, how do you form it? How do you work toward it? How do you achieve it? And I bring that up because, you know, the industry is grappling with who it is. Certainly the public perception of financial advice is not great. And then within the hundreds of thousands of practitioners just in the US alone, forget globally, you do have the whole range of Gordon Gecko to Brene Brown, and the right "quote unquote" advisor looking for the right clients, and sometimes it maps up, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it uh, the uh,
1: the goals based management or the goals based um, uh, you know advice is, is is fraught with a lot of things, and I mean, I think in our parlance, it's fraught with I think the same effects that plague institutional money management as well which is that things things tend to whether your your goals are sort of an appropriate objective even sort of leave aside you know all of the the neurological and other implications of it it gets abstracted into a monte carlo right where it's yeah. your your goals are now you know whether or not the particular inputs to this this model that we've given you from a off the shelf provider to generate a monte carlo outcome says you have a greater than 80% you know, chance of achieving that in year X, right? And and so it becomes this abstract or what we call kind of a cartoon. But you know, and so I, we recognize that. But I also think, and 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 you know, I don't want to put you on the spot here because I'm I'm kind of curious because you seem perhaps a bit more optimistic you know, than than, uh-huh. than I might be, or uh, probably certainly than Ben might be about. Yeah, I'm this, the grumpy
0: old man. So the the state obvious. of the
1: industry, right? Because, so I'm I'm kind of curious about the the homogeneity of. You know, and not to say that you're saying that there is, you know, a homogeneous structure to how people are approaching this, because you by by definition you're sort of saying there's there's room for a lot of different approaches. But I'm still seeing a a substantial convention in the industry and a stickiness to reliance on a sales model of generate twelve B ones to pay financial advisors within a warehouse, sell as many high-priced quote liquid alternatives or if you can do it, other kind of pseudo alternatives as possible through your wealth management channel. Still try to stick people with as much prop product as you can, even though you say on the surface that you're not trying to do that. Mm -hmm. And I still see an awful lot of that. And 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 certainly in terms of AUM, and while I see that obviously there are so many trends in, in, in other directions, it still feels to me like the conventions of our industry that are trying to sell those things which I think all of us are on, on, on this podcast would agree are commoditized services, right? They're not re- they're not coaching services. They're related to the closer to the Bud Fox level of, of what's being provided to say, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm going to sell you the best investments in the room. When you pay me this fee, you're going to have the best portfolio in the room. And I still feel like that's a huge part of our industry. And I feel like you're saying that you don't feel that as strongly, but I don't want to put words in your mouth.
2: Yeah, you could put words in my mouth. I, <laughs> I, I trust you. Um, well, wait, wait, I, I am optimistic. First of all, let, let's set some context. I mean, how many long-only mutual fund shops are still selling Skill and Alpha as something they provide? Okay, the, the these things, take decades to die out. I think one of the lessons I've learned just as I've grown older in the world is that inertia is real. And that, you know, a lot of key shifts on the things that we think don't make sense will keep going until the people who will always believe them go away, retire, pass, whatever. So I'll also admit to there being a real sample or selection bias to the work I do and as a result, some of the observations that I make. Because 99.x% of the financial advisors that I end up having deeper conversations with and, and, and build relationships with, um, they, they know what the game is mm-hmm. and, and they play it. They, maybe they continue to play it in one way or another because ultimately, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. You know, people need to make a living which isn't to say that there aren't, I, I, I wouldn't know what the number is, but so many people within the wealth management industry who are thinking about what's next, which isn't to say, what are the legacy structures and incentives? I mean, geez, I mean, incentives in our industry is, what? what, what is, you know, Show me somebody's incentive and I'll, I'll I'll be pretty good at predicting how they're going to conduct themselves. Well, I want to I want to get
1: to a point on there. And this is sort of an uncomfortable thing about personal finance and that within our industry, there has always been this expectation that this is a highly compensated industry. Mm-hmm. And so much of that inertia, I think, is driven by institutions. But, uh, you know, I, I think a, a not less substantial part of the inertia to – some of these changes or the resistance to some of these changes rather is that everyone kind of comes into this industry and says, I expect, I'm going to make a lot of money that I'm going to make a lot of money. And this is an uh-huh. industry where people like make a lot of money and uh, you know, I'm going, I'm going to embrace the strategies and approaches what permit me to do that. And, and generally speaking, my experience has been, and I'm I'm hoping here uh-huh. that your optimism will tell me a different story. My experience has been that when it comes down to it, high net worth individuals and families love to see a presentation and love to hear you talk about coaching, behavioral management, vision setting. But in the end, what they want to pay for is the promise that you, or the belief that you're going to be able to deliver a superior investment product. And and I know that when I met with families and when I got brought into, you know, because I was on the investment side of the house, Mm -hmm. when I got brought into a meeting It was not to double down on the statements that were being made about, here's how this financial advisor is going to help you really start shaping your thinking and your behavior and and, and develop a framework for thinking about... What money and meaning and and the connection between those things? No, I got brought in because they wanted to have someone that they thought was going to be smart to sell them yeah. as you were. You were
0: the wizard that they brought in to say, "Here's here's where the magic happens to make you a lot of money." Right. For
1: better or worse, because yeah. you know, my my opinion, I, I'm I'm, I'm ill suited to that particular role. But for whatever <laughs> reason, they thought I was well suited for it. And and I'm I'm wondering if you think that 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 can change. Right? Is is there going to be an audience for being willing to pay? what people are used to paying financial advisors for services that do not promise or allude to the idea that people are going to be able to generate superior investment results?
2: Um, So the answer is yes. I I firmly believe the answer is yes. And we can go to the other side of the fence to the, to the, um, you know, investment, not the wealth management side of things, and just look at the success of Vanguard and them being at five, six plus trillion or wherever they're at, a lot of people are giving up the game of trying to beat the market and they'd rather just be the market. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether or not that's smart on a going forward basis, where rates are and slope of the yield curve, like uh, for our purposes today, who cares? Like not, not where we're going. But I think there's been a cultural shift on the investment side already which isn't to say that there won't be legacy players around for decades who were gonna do what they do from an active management point of view, active at the security selection, the portfolio construction, the portfolio, um, you know, larger asset allocation issues. And on the wealth management side, I think that um, it's, it's such a massive market it's really hard to generalize, but I think there's a growing cohort, and it's just not a mm-hmm. generational claim about millennials and Gen Z. I, I always bristle a bit you know, talking about cohorts of 70 million people and with you know sweeping sweeping generalizations. I think there are people from their 70s into their 20s who um, understand that um, their goal is not to beat the market. In fact, for the most part, they couldn't give two craps about money and finance. They they just want to be able to live the life that they want. And increasingly people are showing up and it's really coming from the independent side of the business, the yep. people rolling out of wirehouses and other broker dealers who are showing up and, you know, they're not necessarily giving lectures on what's your purpose in life, but to Ben's word, coaching um whether or not they call it coaching they are effectively becoming counselors in someone's broader quest for broad well-being so i think of well-being in four buckets physical emotional spiritual and financial and we have very well set roles or service providers in terms of doctors priests and therapists the financial advisor as the provider of financial or the, the guide to to achieve financial well-being, how exciting is it that I I know hundreds of people ages 25 to 60 something who have serious investment chops and financial chops that want to have conversations with families about what really matters to them, as opposed to tweaking what percentage Bitcoin is in their portfolio, let alone saying, hey, I know a better mid-cap value fund. Um, again, it's hard for me to put numbers on it. Um, and I'm biased. There's a real sample bias in part because of my FinTwit community that tends to run more toward the independent side of things. Yep. But I've also had conversations with execs in H at, at, at headquarters at very large financial planning platforms. And they know that they're not going to feel a ton of pressure today, or maybe even a year or four from now. But they're compensated by their stock price for the most part, and they know that they need to have a competitive offering because there are lots of people stepping in, Vanguard being first and foremost, who wants to do to advice what it did to the fund business 25 years ago, and make a very reasonable offering for a very low price, which is going to be good enough for most people. And that scares the crap out of a lot of executives at certain wealth management shops.
0: Yeah, and that, that's where I want to kind of make this transition from talking about the business of advice and talk about the experience of, I'll say it, receiving advice, the experience of thinking how to think about your personal finances, right? So not the business of it, not from the advisor's perspective, but from the advisee's perspective. And again, I know we're using this word advice when we've been talking about, well, maybe that's not the right word, but. That's right. the word we use, right? So, part of part of the, the the transition here is a phrase you just used, Brian. Where you know, are people? Should you, the listener? Should you, as an individual, is is good enough? What we should be thinking about our investment aspect of this, right? you know is it be, because to to, to Rusty's point for so long good enough wasn't good enough right you needed to be
1: exceptional you know or, or you you needed a story of why you could be successful right a story <laughs> what he says even right.
0: better even, even better ex- ex- exactly and so and, and where i'm where i'm going with this is is something you described earlier brian where you said yeah yeah you know the industry to try to encourage this this former way of doing things about a story about how you're going to do better, really kind of invented this notion of, okay, tell me your goals. Mm-hmm. Tell me your goals, and we're going to, you know, create the products that are going to help you achieve those goals, and we can do that better than, you know, company XYZ, who you're not going to talk to because you're going to sign with us right here while, while, while we're doing our talking right now. So if, if it's not that sort of goals-based um, thinking, you know, what does it mean? You talk about a, a life of funded contentment, right? What does uh-huh. that mean? What, what what should people, the advisee, how should you think about this life of meaning and the role of money with it, if not thinking about specific goals like, okay, I've got to put the kids through college or I've got to, you know, fund XYZ for retirement? What's the alternative to that, Brian? How, uh-huh. how should we be thinking about constructing the purpose and then the role of money in that?
2: So it's not in any way wrong to focus on goals. I mean, that, that, would, be, that, that, that would be silly. I mean, we're, we're wired as humans to be kind of goal, goal-seeking, striving. You know, we, we, we survive, then we thrive. It's, it's, it's part of our ge- genetic code. It's just that when we make goals the end-all, be-all of, of everything, um, we, it's not necessarily going to produce the life that we want. To live. So, you know, there's a bunch of psychological principles that sit beneath this. And probably the most powerful is just this notion of hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill, which is that um, we know that, you know, when we achieve goals in life, both little ones like, hey, I want to have this great dinner tonight, and big ones like, oh, I want my child to get into the, you know, college of her choice, you know, first college of her choice. Um, when those things actually come to pass, the positive emotions that we feel uh, tend to be less intense and shorter lived than we would have predicted. So, you know, that's the effect of forecasting combined with hedonic adaptation. Um, But we we don't need the fancy terms to know that we sort of get used to everything in life. And Mm -hmm. this idea that, well, if you achieve your goals, you're going to be this kind of happy. You're going to be happy. So, yeah, you're going to be yeah. happy. Um, may, maybe for 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 a little bit, and then you move on. You move on to the next thing. So, goals aren't wrong. They're just very incomplete, and they have become such God, such a heavy center to the wealth management industry. I think they're they've become a little bit distracting. You know, I, you know, I, I speak to a lot of advisors, different groups, small groups, big groups, you know, 10 people, 500 people. And, and lately I've been starting off with the question, are you responsible for your client's happiness? Now it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to um, feel or yeah, sense heavy. awkward. What's that? <laughs> that's heavy. Yeah, I know. Well, it's, it's mostly been over zoom. Uh, well, it's only been over zoom for the last, whatever, 10 months. But you can almost feel the awkwardness across the Zoom right. wave, right. like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And I ratchet down, and are you responsible for your client's, you know, for your client's well-being? Well, that word doesn't mean as much to most people. And so it, it, it's a. It's little easier bit, for them to say, yeah. yeah it's they, a little they, bit of a safe yeah. space because, look, nine, nine, 99, leaving aside Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko, you know, all advisors kind of care about the well-being of their uh, of uh, uh, of their clientele, the 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 I don't know if it's a leap or a bridge or a, a, a leap over where the bridge would be. Um, metaphors aside, there is something I call purpose-based planning that precedes mm-hmm. goals-based planning. That is, um, I don't know if it's an add-on or just a natural extension. But there are deeper sources of meaning in our life. I I wrote about those at length in in the book. Um, uh, you know, we've all spoken about them. I I think the the mental model I've come up I've come up with the so called four C's: connection, control, competence, and context. Um, I've got a a lot of mileage out of that because I think it resonates with people's philosophy and psychology and theology. And it just, it seems to, to land well and happy to dive into any of those categories. But if you can add that level of insight into helping people ask why, it, it, in addition to the, the, the what and the how, my sense is that the advisor-client relationship elevates that much more. And if people are really worried about protecting their margins, because at the end of the day, we got to make a living, um, being able to offer that broader and deeper experience while the guy down the street builds yet another 60, 40 portfolio, well, then you've really earned your keep. And my experience over the last year or two as I talk about these things is that there are many advisors who want to go there, but they're not exactly sure how, which is where some of the, you know, content that I've created, you know, fit, fit fits into things.
0: Well, you know, Brian, but this is exactly where I wanted to take this, because when you're talking about before you have goals or or beneath goals is purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you can talk about purpose and, and the ability to to help define that purpose from the advisor's point of view. But what I'm talking about is kind of the the DIY aspect of this, for the again the advisee, for the person whose personal finances they want to improve, mm-hmm. you know, what what is necessary here is not oh define your goals. What's really necessary here is to think about and tease out what, what are my purposes, what are the purposes that are driving these goals that I set now. Where that's going to play out is is if you know thyself, right, and you understand what is your purpose. What what do you mean by a life well lived? A life of funded contentment is the you, you, the, you, the phrase you're using earlier. Understanding those purposes, that's going to help you identify well which of these advisors or firms are trying to sell you something else, right? Sell you a product as opposed uh-huh. to who are the advisors who are going to help me not only achieve my goals, I want to achieve my goals, but further the purposes that I have in the life I'm trying to achieve. That, yeah. It's so hard. I mean, at least in be because, and, and this sort of maybe
1: adds on to the question Ben would be posing to you, Brian. It strikes me as so hard because when I think about this question of purpose, and it gets back to what you know Brian dis- dis- discussed these those four categories of health right you talked about it was physical well-being rather physical well-being um emotional, spiritual, spiritual, spiritual emotional, emotional and, then, and then financial the the idea of purpose and its relationship with goals is so dynamic and oh. we're so comfortable with that in other parts of our lives and less so in finance where so for example like in 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 spiritual lives and and I know uh you know Brian and I come from cousin traditions from a spiritual perspective, but you know, in, in in the in the in the Christian faith, there there's this idea of peace, right? And you know, and we're in the Christmas season, and and people talk about, well, why did why did Jesus come? And and part of why they talk about it is peace. And people think, well, what peace means is quiet and stability and 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 all of that, and. And of course, Jesus sort of looks at that in the scripture and says, no, y'all, I came to bring the sword. Hmm. And and his idea behind peace is actually a thing in motion. And so, being at peace is actually being in line with a process which is constantly undergoing change and having that not be something that upsets everything. It's not hmm. a static static. It's, not a, statics, it's, it's right. not a goal, as it were. It's a where are you in 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 alignment with a changing thing and you know I wrote a piece about a year or two ago a year a year and a half ago about work and this idea that which is you know and it relates to this sort of mar- Marxist co- concept which is very not in line with my my political predispositions but it is this idea of the holiness of work and the idea that even if you are capable of not working you're for most of us our souls our spirits will be agitated yeah. by the absence of work and labor and producing something because we're we're wired for it. And so I I think we're 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 so comfortable with hearing these messages about meaning that don't ascribe some static place that we must achieve and therefore once we've achieved it we're done we're comfortable with there being dynamism and other parts of our
2: our well-being in those four dimensions but not in finance but
0: not in finance
1: in that we're, we are, right. we're so and, static
2: and, well so let's put it in motion right like that, if it if it if it's sitting still well let's let let's get it going i mean who we are changes over time there's a great study one of my favorite favorite social scientists is daniel gilbert who wrote a fantastic book stumbling on happiness and he, with a bunch of other social psychologists, have done great work for decades now. And he's got a study, a group of scholars has a study where they engage with 19,000 respondents, you know, very sophisticated from a psychometric point of view. And they look, they, they, they engage people on their preferences, their values, and their identity. And, and, and Ben and I, as recovering social scientists, we know that identity precedes preference, but getting to that identity is is sort of a a hard thing. But it's it, it's a tougher nut to crack. But it's it's more important. Mm-hmm. Gilbert and this crew asked nineteen thousand people. Um, you know, g- give us um, sort of a sense of you know what 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 you've liked over time, what you've valued over time, who you've been over time. Get give us your memories of yourself today versus ten years ago versus twenty years mm-hmm. ago, and have have you changed over time? And, unequ- and strong evidence, yes. I mean, I think right now. So I'm 51. Am I the same guy as I was at 41? Not really, but recognizable. 31? Hell no. 21? Yeah. I don't even know that dude, right? Yeah, I don't either. But, I know exactly what you mean. Yep. Okay. But then they said, hey, Portnoy, when you think about who you're going to be, what you're going to want when you're 61, like, wh- what's that all about? And the, the general response from these 19,000 people was, I'm cool. I'm fine. Yeah. Like I am who I am. And Gilbert et al called it the end of history illusion. Yes. Wow. And yeah. basically, like because our our memories are massive hard drives that don't work very well. Some large percentage of our memories are things that never happened. D- different conversation. But we have these massive, messy hard drives for memory that we're sampling from all the time and basically projecting forward. And our imagination is like a little thumb drive. It's weak and it's very hard to like imagine different futures without being prompted or drawing from memories, most of which didn't even take place. And so we always imagine that we've changed over time, but it's impossible to imagine that we're going to be different in the future. And I don't think it is outrageous to think that the modern financial advisor and financial coach can help people become who it is they wanna be in the decades to come. And that is not a question of goals. That is a question of identity and a question yep. of purpose. And whether it be a sense of belonging or a sense of autonomy or a sense of joy that you get from your work or your vocation or your connection to something bigger than yourself, in particular your faith or, or allegiance to place, patriotism, something like that. If you're not getting into those four buckets of meaning, then you're not doing as much as you can to live a fulfilling life, which you could certainly choose not to. But, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to chop some wood here.
0: <laughs> Is it as simple as saying that you're that because we can't know who we're going to be in 10 years and because, you know, Rusty mentioned that that Marxist concept, I, I mean, I'm the the token Marxist here, so I'll I'll, I'll talk about it. it's the This notion of alienation.
1: I'm a, and, Yeah, I think I'm actually the outnumbered one here.
0: Yeah, <laughs> fair, fair, enough, fair enough. And it's it's you know I, I think it's the smartest thing Marx ever wrote by by a by a pretty wide margin. But what it, what he meant by alienation was separation. Uh-huh. That you are you are distanced from. You what from what, your labor from your labor, right? And he was sp- talking specifically about labor, right? that 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 in the act of working on an assembly line while what, what that you are creating a cog, mm-hmm. you yourself become a cog. and you begin to think of yourself as a cog, and that that is a. That is not the life of the cog. Is not a life worth living, <laughs> or, or is it's it's not as fulfilling a life. It's not a life of funded contentment, right? Yeah. And 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 I think the, the the interesting thing is to take that concept of alienation from labor, and think of the the way we are alienated from so many things in our life today. We are alienated from our political participation, from our vote, right? We we are we are alienated from. From our investment, we're 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 buying like a little electronic blips that don't represent a fractional ownership share in a in a company that's making something in the real economy. We're we're increasingly alienated from our our families, right, and we're increasingly alienated from ourselves. And, and it is that 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 struggle to reduce the alienation, right? That, that that I that I that I think is at the heart of the. <laughs> The, the the modern angst that we all that that we all possess as it applies to to money though right is is the answer that that we need yeah, optionality in our money mm-hmm. so that that we don't we don't know where we're going and we we're, we're, we're trying to reduce the the alienation that we feel in all these aspects of our life and so that's what money is for but I don't know really what that means i I, I have all these kind of inchoate ideas and I and I know that I, I think they're really at the heart of so much of what we experience in modern life but I don't know how to boil that down into financial advice well
1: I, I certainly yeah. know that I mean it's been all of the ways in which alienation manifests in finance I mean you talked earlier about the sort of bloodless philanthropy right? yes there's the alienation of uh, like and and I I, I we're both philanthropic. I, I strongly suspect that Brian is too, and and, and and we support things. But there is this this notion, I think that is always sort of in your head that says when I support this, I am. I yes. Am doing yes. That. I, right. am pro, I am. I am When I give that.
0: money to this big faceless, you know. Whether or right. not it it is the case, right? Yeah. And,
1: and I and you know I'm I'm maybe I'm again being the least Marxist. I'm probably also the most cynical at the table about ESG investing, mm-hmm. and and I think there's a component of alienation to that. That is, well, I'll, I'll allocate to an ESG fund, and I've sort of done my good ESG deed for the day, and and so we're 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 pretty long alienation in our financial well being, and and I think the current options that are that are open to us, but it gets veers a little bit away from I think where you're getting, which is how we de Yes,
0: exactly. And it is. So if, if we can, that's, that's kind of, and maybe the answer is we just have to think about it. And this is for another podcast, but is there Brian, if you, or and I don't want to think about this too, is there some way to bring this home? Even if it's just kind of a way to think about how we use money, how we think about money in our lives to reduce that alienation and separation that we have.
2: Yeah. I, the answer is yes. Um, but I don't think we should set ourselves up to fail on the expectation of some grand revelation. So to me, it's (laughs) realistic. I like that. (laughs) Well, it's about being able, willing and able to engage in introspection. And then on top of that, being willing and able to engage in a conversation. And then the question becomes, well, who am I going to talk to? And it might be your partner it could be your your parents your kid your friend co-worker could be your financial advisor could be your priest um it 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 could be lots of people um you know it, it it's hard to imagine in 10 or 20 years from now if the most you as a financial advisor are offering is a 60 40 or a 70 30 portfolio uh, made up of ETFs or mutual funds that you think are quote unquote better than average that you're going to have a, a a robust business uh, it's just it, i i i don't think that's going to i mean will it exist of course it will i mean there Not there's, even
1: if you have the dfa slides in your deck <laughs>
2: you do a really good capital markets deck i anyway, anyway, I'm sorry. yeah okay <laughs> left turn left turn no no comment um and so then you know it it's really about Fin slicing the conversation into manageable pieces about things mm-hmm. that matter to you over time. And to the extent that it's fair game to talk partly about the fact that you want to save a million dollars for retirement. And that on your four percent rule, you have forty thousand of income plus social security, and you know you've got all of the cash flow mapping through eMoney Advisor or some other software platform. That's great. That that sort of but to me necessary but not sufficient. There's the next level of um, what's really important to you, um, you know, and, and it could be your social connections. It could be your sense of 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 control you have over your life, you know this alienation piece. Um, you know I, I I taught Marx to undergrads at University of Chicago in the in the mid 1990s. So I've I, I, I've dabbled, and. Um, <laughs> There, there are certain elements to what he wrote about that are absurd, but there are other pieces that, you know, will always make sense and probably make more sense than ever as we live in this epistemological chaos where facts become optional and, and it's relatively easy to create our own kind of freestanding kind of existence. Mm-hmm. You know, um, let me map work onto leisure, so part, part of the way I think about these things is, is sort of historical and sociological and what it means to be a consumer, what it means to engage in leisure, what it means to, to work, what it means to be an investor. These are all historically sp- specific concepts. They've evolved like significantly over the last three, 400 years. Compare the way Veblen wrote about the leisure class and the Mm -hmm. idle rich. The whole point was to have enough money where you didn't do a damn thing ever. Why Fitzgerald books are so damn boring. No one does anything. But that was the point. You're not supposed to do anything. And if you did, you'd be shunned from society. Now you fast forward to a book that came out a year or two ago that I think is a really good, but not great book. um, uh, The Meritocracy Trap by uh, Daniel Markovitz, who's a a Yale Law School professor. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting about that book is that he flips the script and he writes about the busy rich. We've gone from Veblen to um, Markovitz in a century or, or so. And we've gone from the idle rich to the busy rich. And we live in the world of the busy rich in financial services writ large. And it's all about busy as um, kind of a, a status symbol of you know being overwhelmed not as a problem, but as a solution to some existential itch that probably doesn't exist, but that you think it should. So you, you mm-hmm. get, into, get into layers. Um, there's no reason why a friend or a partner or a financial advisor can't be equipped to talk about these sorts of things. And so when you um, get into, uh, I know I'm jumping around topics, but something I've been writing about a lot lately is time affluence. Versus time poverty. When, when you think about, you know, using money to buy time, there's actually material evidence that money buys time. It buys convenience. It it buys shortcuts. It 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 buys time. Um, why aren't financial advisors advising on time affluence at the same time they're picking that super hot mid cap value fund?
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yep, that's a, that's that's a great that's re- point. I, I've actually that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, so I, I think that's actually where where I I, I want to kind of pull out two things here. First, I want to I want to end with this notion of time affluence and thinking about how that is because th- I'll say in my own life, time is the tool I use to reduce alienation. Mm-hmm. Time right. is that tool, right? It's the time that I can then call my mom. Yeah. Right. It's the time I can use to read an actual book about something that's not required, you know, for work or, wh- or what I'm doing. It's time for me to think about how I want to talk about the things I'm interested in talking about. Right. So so I, I think for me, time is that tool. I mean, it's a fundamental currency. I mean, it's irreducible. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that is the yeah. currency. Right. The other thing that I want to pull out, though, is if if we're talking about some enormous concept like alienation, right? It's too daunting that way. Yeah. Of, of course, there's no application of investment or personal finance or any sort of finance to solve the problem of alienation, right? What we have to do is we have to break that down into specific issues that we want to improve, not as a, necessarily a goal, not that Oh, I'm going to call my mother once a week, right? But no, it's like you know what? I'm I'm going to call my mother tomorrow. I'm going to call my mother right now, right? As we go up from which well, this, just, this, I
1: this mean, podcast? It, I would say right because I mean we're we're talking about what is what is sort of the the antithesis of of alienation. Yeah, I think it's a little cute to say that it's meaning, but I don't know that it's it's wrong. wrong. It's not wrong. And, and so when 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 Brian talks about going from defining purpose to then the process for executing it. I mean, I think that's kind of what you're, you're describing right now.
2: Yeah. 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 So, I mean, go, go, go back to, you know, we've, we've thrown around funded contentment a few times. I I haven't bothered to define it. Um, It's almost a nice feeling that we take for granted that people know what it means. Um, You know, I define funded contentment as the ability to underwrite a a meaningful life Um, it's, you know, what I equate to true wealth and I distinguish, um, being rich from being wealthy, rich is the quest for more, which is sprinting on a treadmill, doesn't get you anywhere. Um, being wealthy means that you can afford to live the life that you want to live, which at one level couldn't sound more generic or even trivial. But it's actually not where most of our conversations are at any level, including the, the wealth management industry. So, you know, not only at the goals or preferences level, but at the identity level. Who is it that you kind of want to be? And maybe, you know, you, that's not a conversation for everybody. Um, but it shouldn't be sort of driven by your net worth in a spreadsheet. Like, why isn't that a, you know, so we talk about high net worth or ultra high net worth and, you know, another lame concept from our industry, mass affluence, I'm still not sure what that means, but like, why aren't more people being afforded the opportunity just to think about the life they want to live, but then go to the next level and say, well, what does it, what does it cost to live that life? And where's the help for that? Yeah, there's a lot of work to be
0: done. Where's the help? Where's the coach? I, I, I am of the firm belief that the only edge that exists in human life today, and this is edge, if you want to think about it in a trading sense, this is edge in the sense of living a life well-lived, the only edge that's available to us as human beings is to know thyself. Mm-hmm. That's where the edge is. It's all internal. It's all internal. That's where your edge is. So that was, you know, that's what Socrates said, whatever, twenty five hundred years ago, and it's it's just as true. It's more true today than, than than I think it's ever been. And you know, they they killed Socrates for that. So we have to be a little bit careful. But uh, but I but I but I think it's that that's at the core of all of this. That's what you? each of us can, I- can
2: do. Can I ask you guys a question? Do you think it's harder to know yourself now than it was twenty four hundred years ago?
0: Mm, I'll say that I, I think that the we are told and and not not told in a in a uh, in a forceful somebody's going to give you an electric shock if you do otherwise, but I think that we are told in that kind of smiley face authoritarian narrative way from <laughs> from an early age, certainly through adulthood and to our deathbed, is that it is not important to know thyself. That what is important is to know, or you know, and putting that in quotation marks here, some aspect of the external world. So mm. I, I I I think that I think that is it is it is more difficult to know thyself today because we have drummed into ourselves that knowing ourselves is less important than knowing some grand cause that we can uh, join and further for the for for hmm. for for the state or for the corporation <laughs> or, or or the like. And, and I, so I do think it's harder to know thyself today uh, than it's ever been. Hmm. So
1: uh, I mean I'll. I'll I'll answer the question somewhat differently. And you guys are, you're familiar with credit terminology, so I'll I'll use this analogy. There's incidence and there's severity. Mm -hmm. The severity hasn't changed, which is to say our biological predisposition to be aware of narratives, tribes, and identity archetypes is the same, right? We respond to memes in the same way. We respond to the awareness of other and groups in the same way. The severity is the same. The incidence, I think, has changed. I think we are more frequently reminded of what everyone thinks everyone thinks and what everyone knows everyone knows. I think we are more frequently reminded of what is correct and what is right-think and what is right-sounding mm-hmm. ideas uh-huh. and right-sounding thoughts for people that match our concept of self. And so to the extent we we are able to know ourselves as in any of the dimensions we've been talking about – I think that the the severity remains the same, but the incidence of our exposure to the stimuli which would cause us to frame our concept of self differently, I think those are
0: are are much more frequent today than they would have been twenty four hundred years ago. I hear you, man. Well listen, anytime we can we can wrap up a podcast by being able to say, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. (laughs) That's a that's a pretty good podcast. Not well, not bad. only
1: that. I mean, we we can and we can also wrap it up by having unintentionally and cleverly given a promo for I think Brian's current book because if you talk about knowing oneself, I mean, I think that the, the book that that you now have that's that's a, only a, about a yeah. month or so out on on the yeah, market is out, about yeah. how I invest my money yeah. and it's about identifying how different people think about this very question that that we've concluded our podcast talking about.
0: I, I love that. So, so, so Brian, bring us home with a, how people can get in touch with you if they want to hear more and b where people can see more or read more of your work.
2: Uh, a- 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 absolutely. So um Website for the company I founded about a year ago is uh, shapingwealth.com, which is a financial well being platform that maybe uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that some other day. But it really gets to kind of educational technology around many of the topics that we're talking about. So you could check out the website and reach me through there. And then, um, you know, I, I still, for better or for worse, remain active in financial Twitter. So. <laughs> Yeah, it is for the worst, but, um, uh, at Brian Portnoy is, is the way to, is the way to track me down there.
0: Very good. Shapingwealth.com at Brian Portnoy. Brian, my friend, thanks for being uh, with us for this second Epsilon Theory podcast. What a
2: pleasure. Awesome. Thanks guys.
0: Great. Thanks again. Good night, everyone.